Hello and welcome to Winning Retail. I'm Ruth, Nestle's Toll House Cookie Coach. This episode features an interview with Orchid Bertelson, Head of Consumer Experience, Strategy, and Innovation at Nestle USA. With over 30 brands in her portfolio, Orchid has spent the past 10 years evaluating and testing emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, voice assistance, and AR and VR. On this episode, Orchid discusses the connection between consumers and cavemen, the rise of social commerce, and my dream job as the cookie coach. This podcast is presented by Dell Technologies and Intel. Together, we help you realize digital transformation across retail by driving IT innovation to better engage with today's connected consumer. Learn more at delltechnologies.com slash retail and intel.com slash retail. So please enjoy this interview between Orchid Bertelson, Head of Consumer Experience, Strategy and Innovation at Nestle USA and your host, Tony Saldana. Thank you for the introduction, Roots. Welcome to a new episode of Winning Retail, the podcast that's designed for retail executives. We help you take the biggest issues in retail and turn them into the biggest strategic opportunities and ideas. My name is Tony Saldana, and today I'm absolutely delighted to have as a guest Orchid Bertelson. Orchid is the head of consumer experience and strategy and innovation at Nestle USA where she evaluates and tests emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, voice assistance, AR, and VR. Orchid has a varied portfolio made up of 30-plus brands and includes beloved brands such as Coffee Mate, Toll House, and DiGiorno. Hey, welcome to the show, Orchid. Thank you so much, Tony. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, our pleasure. I have to say, I have been so looking forward to this conversation Uh, We were talking before the recording, we have so much in common uh, uh, in terms of friends from uh, Nestle, among other things. Um, But the other thing that we have in common is um, a a mutual affinity for cookies. (laughs) My, uh, my, 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 my kids call me the other cookie monster. So, but in any case, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of getting to food towards the end. But um, let's start with you. You know, tell us a little more about your career in retail and how you made your way to Nestle, because you've had varied experiences in um, in, in in life, from intellectual property, uh, legal assistant to digital marketing to digital innovation to now, of course, you know, strategy and consumer uh, experience. So, tell us a little more about the backstory here. Sure, I think varied is a very kind way of putting it. Um, you know, and my I'm first generation um, Taiwanese, so when my parents came over in the late '70s, I was born here. I was born in Kansas, which is something that a uh, few few people know. Um, but you know, of as the child of immigrants, there are really only a few career paths you can go down, um, whether it's engineer or lawyer or doctor. And so where I ended up, um, I didn't even really think was a career. Um, you know, frankly, it wasn't a career at the time. My birthday is actually tomorrow, um, but I was born in the early 80s. Um, and so social media didn't exist. So when I went to um, undergrad at George Washington University, I studied international affairs. I applied for the CIA twice um, and then decided that I'm a very bad liar um, because I just get too lazy with keeping track um, and then thought maybe I was going to be ambassador to the UN. But, you know, of course, you've got to be a lawyer um, leading up to all of those things uh, unless you're a large donor. 
So, you know, that's why post GW, my first job was at um, a big international law firm. I supported the intellectual property legal team. And, you know, we had very large clients like eBay, Intel at the time. Um, So I would say that, you know, although my first job um, wasn't ultimately the career path that I went down, technology has always been a part of my interest and, and my experience. So after the law firm, um, I suffered a quarter-life crisis <laughs> where, you know, this career path that I had always imagined myself going down wasn't really um, what made me happy. And so I was like, all right, well, let, let me take a pause. Um, so I actually went back to sales, um, which is little known as well. Wow. I ended up um, as a sales supervisor at Gucci. Um, down in Tyson's Corner, if you're familiar with the D.C. area. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah, and it was at Gucci that I actually fell in love with marketing. Um, So I I promise you there's a flow here. Um, But, you know, you would think that talking about purses and handbags wouldn't get old every day. Um, And it did in some senses, but the best part was really speaking one-to-one with the consumers who came in, right? Because they weren't looking for something to functionally hold other things You can get a free canvas tote bag, which I'm sure we all have 20 of. Um, You don't need to spend, you know, two to three thousand dollars on a handbag. And so what they really came in um, was for the story uh, and of, you know, treating themselves or maybe they had a recent accomplishment and wanted to mark it with a milestone. So that's really kind of where the in-depth consumer interviews and the fact that people were buying something far beyond a product really started to resonate with me. So coming out of Gucci, I was like, all right, I think I have to get back into corporate because, you know, if you stay anywhere for so long, you know, you get pigeonholed. And I think that that was a bit naive, but, you know, I was in I was in my mid 20s at the time. So I started at a uh, public affairs firm in D.C. and I was supporting the CEO at the time and working closely with the CMO on special events, marketing, thought leadership. So this is really when I started to make that pivot um, into marketing as part of my career. Um, yeah, and after that time there, um, I actually moved up to New York um, to support um, the larger CMO because the firm that I was with had just gotten acquired. So at that time, you know, really got into digital. I mean, I would say this was 2010 about. So relaunched our global site and eight regional sites and worked on launching um, their journal um, in both, you know, hard copy as well as you know, online. Um, and then went, you know, creative agency side. Um, yeah, although I was supporting corporate, you know, what I really, really loved was the creativity part of it. So went over to McGarry Bowen, um, which is a Dentsu agency, and led their CPG accounts, whether it's, you know, Mondelez or Kraft or Purina. Um, and then after that, you know, kind of made my way to Nestle. Um, I wish I could say that there was intention behind my career choices, And I think there was to a certain perspective, um, but it wasn't entirely planned. I kind of um, flowed to where my interests lie, right? You know, in many ways, um, uh, that's actually a perfect uh, innovation career. You have to be, (laughs) yeah, no, it it, it is all about uh, connecting dots, isn't it? And and having Mm -hmm. a restless mind, uh, so to speak. And, um, you know, hey, your success speaks for itself. Um, In fact, you've said, uh, Orchid, that... um, Innovation is really about finding new solutions to old problems. Um, And so I want to give you the opportunity to kind of explain that. What does that mean? Yeah, sure. Um, I think a lot of people define innovation differently. And and some people, I think a large group of people define innovation as ideation or get it confused. 
whereas ideation is really just one part of innovation. Um, so when you say innovation to some folks, they think, oh, you're like sitting on a beanbag chair and putting a lot of different colored post-its on the wall. Um, and that's just one small part of it. And so, you know, I, I've looked at various definitions in the past. Where I was like, all right, well, you know, I, I think, you know, I want to articulate what innovation means to me. And the reality is that when you look at certain problems that we have or certain challenges, I mean, they've existed before. A lot of them are centered around human truths that have happened, you know, or reoccurred over generations and over centuries. So, but, you know, the tools that are available to you in way of solutions um, change, right? And especially with technology and the internet, you know, the fourth industrial revolution being a part of it. So innovation, it is that, I think it's very, very um, rare that we find new problems um, but, you know, whenever we look for opportunities, um, you know, they tend on being, a, you know, to address the same human truths. Uh, we just need a new solution uh, to, to address it. So that's kind of what I mean by it. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and is there a, um, an anecdote or a story from your own experience? Because I, I, I think, you know, some may say that, hey, you know, this whole consumer experience Digital marketing is completely new. I mean, you know, we didn't have digital marketing, you know, before the rise of the internet and stuff like that. Um, but I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the format may have changed, the fact that it's digital, but before that, you know, you had TV and before that you had radio and before that you had maybe town criers or, you know, whatever it is, right? So give me an example from within your career that really illustrates, hey, you know, I might have found a new solution, but the problem itself is really old. Sure. I'll speak broadly and then I'll speak generally. So broadly with um, with human truths, like if you look at marketing, for instance, brands have always tried to connect with consumers, right? We've always wanted them to pick us from their range of options. And that connectivity and what matters to consumers change over time, you know, how we connect, how we engage. Um, you know, if you look at the Mad Men area, very much push advertising and, and there was no pull and now consumers get to be part of the conversation. So ultimately, the challenge is the same. How do you derive relevancy from a brand that you love or how do you as a brand, how do you connect with the consumer and just the levers that you pull are different today as well as some of the messaging. Right. We're kind of moving away from functional to emotional and you kind of turn that dial up or down depending on the mental state that someone is in, um, you know, the time of day, whatever it is. So broadly, you know, I think I think it probably applies um, through most of it. I mean, I think even if you look at COVID, um, there are a lot of learnings from what was it, the 1918 Spanish flu. So there are things that come up time and again, just that, you know, your range of tools are different. Yeah. So specifically, um, there's actually one um, from a few years ago from my earlier days at Nestle. And I've been at Nestle for about six years now. And it was when we had Haagen-Dazs in our portfolio. So Haagen-Dazs, you know, very much, uh, they had a sustainability story to tell. You know, they're very much focused on honeybees and pollinators and, and protecting them because, you know, current commercial beekeeping practices um, are actually pretty stressful for the bees. Um, you know, every year, every single commercial beehive is packed up into trucks and they're actually trucked around the country. So it's kind of like this... Um, nomad um, troop of, of bees going across America um, and they stop at certain farms um, and they get released and they pollinate all the plants and all the fruit trees and then they're packed back up into the trucks. 
which is obviously very stressful. And so Haagen-Dazs, you know, in order to keep their pledges on protecting the pollinators, um, ended up planting, you know, kind of habitats within within um, or- orchards to keep the bees to have so that they have homes year round. Um, because most farms in the U.S. are really focused on monoculture, so they really only you know grow one type. Um, a fruit or vegetable. And if you're from the Midwest like me, you know that it's an annual soybean and corn rotation. Um, So, you know, in order to tell that story effectively to, you know, raise awareness and get people engaged and have people, I think it sparked people's empathy um, for the plight of the pollinators. Um, We actually turned to VR. So this was, um, again, I think it was about five years ago, Um, but we created a very short VR film, um, about five minutes of it's almost um, very magic school bus style where you, we shrink you down to the size of a bee and you get to fly through the orchard and you see, you know, kind of what the habitat is like now versus, you know, what it could be. So, you know, I think that's a great example of we have the sustainability story to tell. We want people to, we want to spur them into action and into understanding and, you know, kind of um, sparking this empathy, as I mentioned. Um, and so VR was just a new way of doing that. And so let's let's relate that then to the retail business, um, because, again, I think we're in the midst of a lot of change that's happening right uh, in physical retail stores. And, and it's becoming, you know, experiential centers and fulfillment centers, because essentially, to your point about the broader need, I mean, that's really what people need. Right. So in the work that you do at uh, Nestle or even generally uh, based on your knowledge, Can you talk about how this construct of new approach to old problems is playing out in retail? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, and I think that's an excellent question for grocery. I mean, the future of grocery is here, right? Um, A lot of that adoption and a lot of that momentum came from COVID where people could not physically go to their grocery stores and pick out their fruit and their produce and and whatever they need um, to put a meal on the table. So you have seen this dramatic shift. I think, you know, if we were to talk about what is the human truth that e-commerce, omni-channel, any of those things address, and it's really about convenience and choice. So consumers, I mean, you know, we can can take this all the way back to when we were cavemen um, and, you know, hunters, gatherers, you know, trying to conserve calories, right, because those were very precious. And so you try to default to what is convenient or what is low effort um, because you might need to conserve your energy to run away from a saber-toothed tiger, which, you know, we don't have to do anymore. Um, Now we just run marathons for fun. Um, And so, you know, convenience has always been a human truth. And we've always had to go find our food. And so, you know, what's interesting is that when we talk about innovation, a lot of times I, I look to the Gartner hype cycle, right? So, um, you know, at the at the peak of the hype cycle is when something, you know, gets a lot of buzz. And then, you know, after that initial buzz, you know, there's a trough of disillusionment um, and, you know, certain industries, I think, are, are first movers when it comes to the hype cycle or when it comes to adopting emerging technology. So, for instance, you know, augmented reality, the makeup and fashion industry are very much at the forefront. Um, but food and grocery, food and Bev is lagging. And so when you look at overall transformation of the retail space, you've seen that grocery has lagged behind other store formats or other industries. So although Tesla is a very trite example, I mean, I think they did a really great job and a great case study in reimagining retail, reimagining car dealers, 
right? They went to where people were, which were malls and had a showroom um, rather than, you know, being in the middle of, um, you know, maybe like a shopping center and uh, or outside of a shopping center and you have to drive to it, right? Um, and so you're seeing that with grocery now. Historically, you know, people, we go to the grocery store and I remember when I was in high school, I used to tease my stepdad because he would go to multiple grocery stores and he would be out all day. Although now I know that's just like his way of having alone time. But he would say, hey, I got my produce at, you know, Mariano's. And then I got like milk at Safeway because they had a really great deal. I was like, I don't even know why you go to all these different places. But you do see that behavior. And I do that now between Trader Joe's and Whole Foods um, because you're always looking for something like a little different and every retailer has its strength. Um, so with COVID, you know, really spurred this idea of, you know, deploying your, your Instacart shopper or, you know, just ordering online, whether it's instant delivery or scheduled delivery. Um, so you're seeing just massive change in that space, but it's all centered around a human truth of people want convenience. That is, that's a really critical and important way of looking at this. Um, you know, while I was at Procter & Gamble, um, the, uh, the our previous CEO uh, basically had broken this down into a few truths. Um, you know, like the consumer is is boss. Um, you have to win at the first moment of truth when you know you're walking down the aisles in the grocery, and you have a choice to make between your product and another competitor's product. And the second moment of truth, you bring the product home, and then you know what's your experience, and you know so on and so forth. But I think. It speaks to the point you're making around, you know, the, these all go back to the caveman or cave person days of, you know, you're looking for, you know, convenience and you're looking for, you know, human needs that really haven't changed. And you're just using different mechanisms and different technologies to try and, uh, you know, keep doing it better and better and better. Um, so to stay with the technology theme here. You know, uh, again, given given your experience and expertise and, and how good you are at connecting dots in the broader world with technology, what types of technologies in retail excite you these days? Uh, social commerce is, is very top of mind for me. Um, so, you know, again, the people, the way that people make decisions and the way that people shop. Because the thing that has changed, so we've always needed food and beverage. We've always you know, needed material things. I think all of that's, that's open up, uh, for debate. But uh, the way that we make those decisions have changed over time and the range of options. So when it comes to options, um, it ends up being a double-edged sword because people suffer. I, I suffer from choice paralysis. Um, so let's say you're picking out a birthday card. If you have 60 options, um, it gets a little overwhelming. But if you have five options, it feels like, all right, I'm making a choice. I'm choosing something for myself, but it's you know less overwhelming. So you know when it comes to social commerce and and getting inputs um, on which product is best, um, and I'll use the makeup industry because they really are leading in this with um, platforms like Super Great, for instance, with you know makeup creators and influencers and you know doing ratings and reviews. And so people are turning, I think they're less reliant on brands. Um, yeah, that's just a reality. And they're turning to people that they trust. And what's interesting is that people they trust used to be a small circle of friends and family. And now that has brought into strangers. And sometimes people trust strangers, right, in, in way of um, ratings and review more than they trust their friends. 
So social commerce and the way that we buy, um, you know, is really fascinating. And I think social commerce can be defined in a couple of different ways. There's certainly group shopping. Um, and all of this uh, tends to originate um, in Asia, whether it's China or Japan, and then, you know, slowly make its way over to the U.S. But social commerce in terms of group buying, right? Like if I buy, you know, a face lotion is $20. But if I get five of my friends to buy it with me, maybe it's $15. So that is certainly one definition of social shopping is group shopping. Another one, and, and I think what, uh, what where my focus is, is that we spend our time, um, a lot of it, on social media platforms, right? And so we've kind of, um, social media has kind of closed that gap between just entertainment, just connection to driving commerce. So now all of a sudden that funnel, that marketing funnel has absolutely collapsed to an instant where you could, you know, be aware of something and purchase it. And and with platforms like Shopify, do it within, you know, basically under a minute. So the dynamics of how consumers make their decisions and like where they spend their time um, and how, you know, the inputs from strangers kind of drive that decision making process um, really makes up social commerce um, in my mind. And so that's something that's very interesting. That's a uh, that's a fabulous new evolving area. And it's one that I think, you know, many physical retailers are starting to catch on to and and do a really good job of incorporating that into their arsenal, so to speak. You know, a little bit like your stepdad, um, I guess uh, I'm I'm the same way in the sense that, you know, if I have to go buy something, um, you know, it's the experience, you know, I, I will go to specific stores for specific products. But to tie this back to social commerce, um, even before I buy that product in the store, I will look at the ratings and reviews right there, and and that will influence whether or not I actually buy it uh, in that store or move on to the next store to, to buy that because, um, you know, you may have a slightly smaller price uh, available there or, you know, whatever it is, uh, some other accessories that are available along with that. So I think that integration of, you know, the, the societal uh, uh, kind of need as well as the opinions of society through ratings and reviews, and then, of course, the physical experience and, and how you you cannot separate those any longer, I think, is um, a, a fascinating evolution. Um, and, uh, and, and, of course, um, you know, that brings us very, very nicely back to my favorite, favorite creature in the world these days, which is Ruth the Cookie Coach. Um, and for our listeners who may not have had the pleasure of meeting, uh, so to speak, Ruth, um, she's a lifelike virtual avatar that uses natural language and AI and autonomous animation to answer basic questions about Nestle's Toll House chocolate chip cookies. So, uh, uh, recipes rather. Um, now, um, uh, this is fascinating. I, I have to know. What's the backstory here? Uh, so, uh, Ruth, our Toll House cookie coach, is a project that's about two and a half years in the making. Um, So as companies um, of all sizes start to adopt the consumer obsession speech, I mean, I think, you know, you could argue we were always consumer obsessed. You know, the reality is that large companies um, have very few channels and avenues where they're communicating directly with our consumers at a large scale. Um, So at the time, you know, we were looking at our customer service data. There were actually like two separate work streams that ended up converging in Ruth. So one was how do we evolve customer service? How do we look at the data that we're collecting today in order to improve our services and our products? And then the separate work stream was all around when, um, you know, it seemed like everybody had a voice skill. 
Um, and it was really trying to get at the forefront of that and say, all right, well, what is our voice strategy, right? We know that NLP is on the rise. We know that people are speaking to devices more than they're, you know, almost as much as they're typing in them and, and that's overtaken that. You know, how do we adopt that in, in our brands? And, you know, what does our brand's audio strategy look like? So there's those two work streams that converged. And during um, the evaluation of our customer service data, because we record about 45,000 hours of phone calls every year from consumers across all of our brands, but we started to spot certain anomalies. Um, so I've got about 30 brands in my portfolio um, and Toll House um, was kind of rising to the top in terms of contact um, length, so call session length, as well as the type of inquiries. So most of the time through customer service, we get questions around product information, nutritionals, where can I buy this? Do you have a coupon? Um, but with Toll House, it was a bit different. Um, Toll House people were calling in to troubleshoot the chocolate chip cookie recipe. Our cookie coach, Ruth, is actually named after the founder of Toll House, of Ruth Wakefield, who created the Toll House Inn. Uh, and she's the inventor of the chocolate chip cookie. So we, we have that original chocolate chip cookie recipe on back of pack. And when people are baking and, you know, maybe they're uh, they forgot to set their butter out to room temperature or, you know, put it in the microwave and it melted everywhere, which is something that happened to me. Um, they would actually just look on back of pack and there was our phone number right there. Um, so it was, it was kind of similar to the turkey hotline that, that happens around Thanksgiving. So we spotted this anomaly and thought it was interesting. So we did some more investigation. And it turned out that the consumer experience was very inconsistent when you called our brand ambassadors. And the reason was because if you were connected to a brand ambassador who was a really amazing baker and loved baking, you would get amazing service because they would know the ins and outs of baking powder versus baking soda. However, if you were connected with a brand ambassador who wasn't well-versed in baking, then you would have a poor experience. Um, and there were certainly times of year where, call, where calls would spike, right, especially around the holidays. Um, so then the, the question was, all right, well, how might we um, provide a consistent and excellent consumer experience through technology to handle kind of these variations in volume throughout the year? Um, so that's when we're like, okay, we think there's something there. So we spent about a year on the strategy of just doing a deep dive and cutting the data in all different kinds of ways, talking to the consumers, um, really kind of imagining the possible. Um, and so that was in 2019. And at the end of the year, I took a pause um, because, you know, kind of all paths led to voice skills, not because it was the best solution, but it was kind of one of the only solutions. And I don't really, yeah, my personal preference is not voice skills. Um, because strategically, you know, from discovery to download to engagement and re-engagement, like that journey is still very much full of friction. Um, so I was like, all right, take a pause. And, and Soul Machines, our partner in building Cookie Coach, you know, reached out in January um, of 2020. And I don't, I get a lot of cold emails and we can certainly speak at another time about, you know, what makes a successful cold marketing email. But I, I happened to answer this, one, right? Because it was very much top of mind. I was like, all right, well, this is an interesting solution. It's a web-based, which is phenomenal. So you could access it from any, any device um, that's connected to the internet. You don't need, you know, to get yourself locked into the Amazon or the Google ecosystem or the Apple ecosystem to, you know, um, engage with Ruth. Um, and then also, you know, having this idea of a digital avatar was interesting um, because we start to see virtual influencers on the rise and, and they're starting to become more popular. 
So we definitely t- took inspiration from Lil Michaela, who is a virtual influencer. Um, she's got millions of followers on Instagram. She played a set at Coachella. She was in an ad campaign with Bella Hadid, right? And this is really where you're blurring um, the lines of, of digital versus reality. And so we can certainly talk about the metaverse too. <laughs> but, you know, for, for the Toll House, we call it the Toll House Cookie Conundrum. And, you know, we didn't, it was actually like a very emotional problem um, when your cookie recipe failed, right? Um, because most often you're baking cookies to show someone that you love them or for your child's bake sale, um, and so this end product really not only is a example or demonstration of love, it's also a reflection of who you are as a person, uh, which sounds a little dramatic, but it's true. And so when your cookies come out of the oven burnt, you've wasted ingredients. Now you don't have something to give to your loved one. And, you know, in our world of this um, Instagram perfect or this focus on the end result, you feel like you have failed, even though maybe you had fun, um, you know, in the baking process. So those were kind of the, the point, point, pain points we were trying to alleviate and also to differentiate Toll House in a highly commoditized category. Um, so, you know, it seemed like the digital avatar was the right fit. Now, we did do um, some user testing and just some consumer feedback when it came to what Ruth would look like. Um, Not so much for individual features, um, but more about if it made sense to go with a photorealistic digital human or if we should create something that was Pixar-like or, you know, a, a modern adoption of Clippy, whatever it is. Because because Uncanny Valley has not been addressed, right? And this is when you're engaging with a virtual being and it feels a little creepy because it seems human, but you know it's not human. Um, and there's no real way to measure that. Uh, that that's really just um, something that happens. Um, but through research, we found that consumers weren't super, I mean, they weren't really concerned about what she looked like. There was actually maybe like a percentage point or two of difference between preference of the avatar, uh, the digital human, or, you know, a Clippy-like character. Um, But where the difference really came out and where Uncanny Valley was um, really overt was around voice. So people wanted the voice to be as realistic as possible. Um, So, you know, we evaluated a ton of text-to-speech providers and options um, and landed on Ruth's voice as it is today, which is AWS polyneural. It is a default voice. You know, we do not need a human to come in and record it because it gives us more flexibility. Yeah, and and, and it's it's recognizable yeah, because it's used in different devices and, and things like that. So uh, it's very, very cool, I, I have to say. Um, now, um, obviously, we've got Ruth here that's... Uh, a great example of a successful application of AI and, and technology in retail. And um, for every route, there's probably, you know, 10 other projects and other companies that have failed. I've been uh, associated in the past with uh, one or two of them myself. Now, I think that the difference here is really, you know, chasing technology because you can do stuff and chasing an objective. So I want you to maybe, you know, uh, dissect the, the, the story here a little bit on um, the, the, the role that technology played versus the business objective played in here. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think in the innovation space, we, we often get dinged on chasing bright and shiny, right? And we can certainly talk about the difference between failure and success because I get that asked quite a bit of, you know, what happens when you fail, 
And I actually think failure is really easy. Um, failure, you kind of just write a wrap up board and you disseminate the learnings and you move on to something else. But I actually think the challenge is success and scale. Because now that, you know, we've launched Ruth on Toll House and the reality is that, you know, she is not 100% perfect, nor will she ever be because something will always change. Consumers will ask different questions or there will be technology improvements or even conversational improvements. Um, so, you know, already the question is like, well, how do we scale her? Do we get that, um, make her experience go deeper and give, you know, consumers more options and what they can bake and what they can be assisted with? Or do we deploy similar experiences across all brands? And the latter is definitely not the answer because, you know, Ruth is a very special use case um, for a special problem that that particular brand has and, you know, addresses a category need as well. And so for us, it's really, you know, brand teams and folks will come up to me all the time and they'll say, well, we should do something in VR. We should do something in AR. I was like, okay, well, what do you, what do you want to do with it? What are you trying to address? Because ultimately the technology is a solution. But you really have to identify and define the problem that you're trying to address, because by asking for a piece of technology and how we're going to action against it, it's similar to someone coming up to you and saying, Tony, I need a hammer and a nail. And you're like, OK, well, what do you need? And like, Well, I need a hole in the wall. And you're like, OK, well, I probably recommend a sledgehammer or, you know, some other tool um, because People jump to the technology because it's almost a shortcut and they're enamored by it and it seems like everybody's talking about it. And we can certainly talk about NFTs as an example of that. But you cannot go chasing a solution without identifying the problem because then you can't make sure that the solution addresses the problem. So that is a challenge that you know I don't think has been resolved and that's okay. I think it's great that people get excited about the vision of technology and the possibilities but to bring the hype cycle back at it, you know, most people hear about a piece of technology when it's at the peak of the hype cycle. But when a technology is at the peak of the hype cycle, that is where the gap between buzz and vision and also um, the maturity of the technology is the largest. And so we just have to be very um, cognizant of that. And I think, you know, for, for me and my team, it's really about oh, well, if something's at the peak of the hype cycle, maybe we'll release a, a point of view or a white paper on it. Um, but we really start to test the technologies in earnest, actually about the trough of disillusionment um, when, you know, reality and the maturity of the technology are the closest um, and it's about to scale. There you go. And, and, and um, thank you for sharing that because I think this is something that other retailers and, and, and other manufacturers can learn from. Um, I mean, we all know that, you know, the retail industry is going to have to continue innovating and, and, and if anything, actually accelerate innovating. Uh, but the insight that you shared, which is, you know, do you start with the what's needed or what's possible? And, you know, you focus in on applying the technology at the right time, which may not be at the peak hype cycle always, it could be at any parts of that cycle, and then go back to what's needed and the clarity of what's needed. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, Orchid, we're at the uh, point in time in our podcast where um, we want to kind of get past um, Orchid, the, uh, the uh, very successful executive, uh, and uh, want to kind of get to know a little more uh, Orchid, the human being. Uh, so uh, you're ready to play? Uh, I am, <laughs> I think. All right. Okay. Um, I'm going to throw a few questions at you. All right, let's go. Crispy or chewy? 
Chewy. Oh, Don, I was hoping you were going to say crispy. Um, <laughs> no, why? Chewy is so, it's far superior. <laughs> That's what makes this a good question. Um, you know, different tastes. I, I, I go. Um, excellent. Um, you're in the Bay Area, Napa Valley or down the coast on Highway 1? Both. And you can do both in a day. And that's why California is great. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yes. Uh, you can also do skiing and you yes. can do the uh, <laughs> beach all in the same day. Um, best thing you've recently bought? Uh, I'm on a book buying spree. So buying a lot of books, not reading all of them, but buying a lot of them. <laughs> awesome. Your favorite subscription service? Uh, I really like the pop-up grocer. Um, so there's in, in the grocery space, there is this idea of curation as a service um, because how people shop and discover new brands is changing. So the pop-up grocer um, actually has a subscription box where you get to explore uh, and engage with new brands. So that's been really fun. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk to my uh, Bortle Genie and uh, they're going to give you the opportunity to be sponsored by any one brand. Which brand would you choose and why? Oh, that's so hard. <laughs> uh, I'm enamored by a lot of brands. Um, and of course, you can't say Toll House or anything related to Netflix. I know. I can, you can't choose one of your own brands because that's very obvious. Uh, a brand that I love. I'm like trying to go through all of them. Um, why is this so hard? <laughs> you love a lot of them. Uh, I would say, oh, I know. Okay, all right. Um, AutoCamp. So AutoCamp is kind of a new way to travel okay. uh, where they have certain locations across the U.S. and you stay in an Airstream trailer. So we just did that um, about a week ago um, in Yosemite. And uh, yeah, no, I, I love that brand. Oh, my. Wow. So that's a new one to me. Um, hey, you know, hopefully by the magic of our, um, uh, our our listener ecosystem, we might get them to sponsor you. You never know. <laughs> the power of manifestation. I'm putting it out into the universe. There you go. There you go. All right. One last question. The most fun app on your phone right now? Uh, it's TikTok. I mean, and I say that like oh, that. I it know. just is. It's uh, just, um, it's not even TikTok, the app, I think. It's about the creativity that people have um, that is just so magical and wonderful to see. Um, and, and it's funny because through TikTok, you obviously engage with a lot of content. And it's really interesting to see people verbalize and share other things that, you know, things that they're going through where you thought you were the only one going through that. So I, I really love the magic of TikTok, but really because of um, the creativity of the creators. Oh, yeah. No, I, I can see that. Absolutely. Well, hey, um, uh, thank you so much, Orchid, for uh, playing along with us. Um, it, it, it really, you know, uh, gives us a 360 degree view of um you and what makes you tick, so to speak. But thank you very much, Orchid, for sharing, um, uh, you know, your, your, your personal preferences there. It, it really helps um, bring Orchid the person and Orchid the innovator and Orchid the executive to life. And um, so, hey, with that, uh, that brings us to the end of the show. I wanted to take the opportunity to thank you so much, um, Orchid, uh, for joining us today. Um, you know, you're one of the examples of uh, how technology and retail and, you know, the basics of human behavior can all be brought together 
in a manner that uh, is so exciting. So thank you for sharing today. Thank you, Tony, so much for having me. And time flies when you're having fun. So I I can't believe it's over already. (laughs) Hey, to our listeners out there, um, I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. And uh, if you haven't done it already, please uh, follow us, subscribe at www.winningretailpodcast.com. And until next time, remember, keep reinventing retail. Thank you again for listening to Winning Retail. To find more episodes and subscribe to our newsletter, go to winningretailpodcast.com.